I knew that was going to I could tell uh, lower. Yeah, just go a little lower. Gail, test one, two. I don't know why it's high. Test one, two. That's, that's probably pretty good. Uh, we've all heard the phrase, God loves me. God loves me. It's been and, and has been said again and again. Um, and yet it, it, it becomes so familiar to us that it loses its meaning. We have to understand what that means. And to understand that, we have to understand who God is. It's not the same as your mom and dad loving you or some other friend or even the person who loves you the most. It's not actually the same at all. Um, and yet we discover that God loves us and be, a, a manifestation of the fact that we don't understand what that means is that we have little time for him, for those who do. Uh, we understand that we desperately need God, but we put little effort into his things and his ways and his word. Uh, we put a lot of effort into the things that we like, and actually none of those things do we actually need, whereas we need God. We find out in the scripture, and Gail, just a little bit lower, I'm echoing a little, just a little down, one, two, there we go. We're going to have to do a sound check every Tuesday and then Sunday again. <laughs> uh, anyway, um, the uh, Bible tells us that God longs to be with us, and that in itself is incredible. It Actually, uh, God writes about the fact that he longs to see us come home to heaven, that it is uh, uh, joyous in his eyes when one of his saints dies. Uh, and, you know, and then on our side, we wonder, you know, what minimum do we have to do so that God doesn't smash us or that, you know, we just get by, and yet he becomes for many, even Christians, uh, kind of a, an extra in life and not the main attraction. God loves me. If this phrase has lost its meaning to you, what I mean to do in our current study is to restore it and to actually plant it even deeper. I've already felt the effects of my own soul and my own uh, dealings with other people. It has, I've already changed in, in ways that I was not thinking about. <laughs> but that's exactly what God's love does. It changes us. It actually will find out that God's love gives us value. There's no value in us at all. There's nothing here other than what God does for me. This is not the love of another human being who loves you for any number of reasons. Perhaps the greatest love is apparent to a child or in marriage. But I think, you know, when we, if you're a parent, a decent parent, you know, and, and you have a, a small child, I think about my love for Maggie right now. is ridiculous. It's almost painful. Uh, but this is not how God loves you. We, I have a reason to love Maggie more than I love other children, because she's mine. But God loves you for no reason at all. Let me say that again. God loves you, and he has no reason to. If you pause at that statement and wonder if it's biblically true, I'm glad about that. I want you to ponder that. 
I want you to actually prove me wrong. If I am, I would love to know. I want you to think about it very carefully. God has no reason to love you. And yet, He loves you more than you can imagine. And He has done so, as He says, before you were even born, before the foundation of the world. And so as we look into our passage today and we continue in our study of love, let's open up in prayer and let's thank God for His love of us and also to, if we need it, to make sure that our hearts and minds are ready to comprehend something that is quite beyond us. And we won't understand all of it, but what we can understand is what has been revealed. And so with that in mind, let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for the scripture that reveals your love to us. We must thank you most of all for your son, Jesus Christ. The ultimate depiction of love on earth is him on a cross dying for the sins of the world. He died and was judged for our sins, all of our sins. And he did so willingly. He did so because it was your will. And Father, he has, through that love, given us to you. And now we belong to you. All who have believed upon him belong to you. And you love us. And it is incredible. It's absolutely incredible that you would love us and love us as much as you do. Uh, help us, Father, to understand what your love is. Because it is uh, paraded as something else in this world. And we're very confused by that because it is so alien to this world. So we thank you, Father, that you can, through your Spirit, reveal to us what it is. We have confidence to know that we can discover it if we just focus on your Word and have you, Father, change any misconceptions that we have. We ask in Christ's name, amen. So our main passage, you can go to John 17. We'll start in John 17. Our main passage is 2 Thessalonians 1.3, where Paul writes to the Thessalonians that he gives thanks. He says that we ought to give thanks to God for you, brethren, which is only fitting or only right, because your faith is greatly increased. And the love, and this is God's love, agape love, the love each one of you toward one another grows even greater. And that word, that phrase, grows even greater. It's a word that in Greek means to superabound. It goes above and beyond, and which is interesting. You know, once we look at God's love here, we want to look at that phrase because, you know, God's love should always superabound. That's its nature. Uh, and yet, in us, it, it shows here by Paul that we've got to learn more and more of it, and then more of it, as he says here, it increases in their lives, and it will increase in ours as well. So, what we want to know is, first and foremost, what is God's love? And, you know, that's an enormous subject. Um, But, so, what we want to see first, at least the way that God has revealed it to me this time around, is that we want to see how different it is and how absolutely alien it is to the world's love. 
Uh, first, we should note that God's love is not new. Uh, God is love. And as God is eternal, his love is eternal. Uh, God Did God love in the Old Testament? Of course he did. In fact, in Deuteronomy chapter 7, God says he chose Israel because he loved her. Um, so, love is not new. It's as eternal as God is. But it is, for us, the revelation of God's love that is new. You see, God told us that we are to love him with heart, soul, and strength in the Old Testament. Right? That's the Shema in Deuteronomy 6. And also to love our neighbor as ourselves. And these two commandments are repeated, repeated by the Lord and repeated by the, in the epistles. And so we would conclude, therefore, so it's the same love. You know, love God in the Old Testament, love God in the New. And we, could, we would definitely conclude that, that it is the same because it's God's love and God can't change. But what has happened in the New Testament is the lens through which we see God and see his love has changed. The Old Testament had the covenants and the law and the covenant. The, really, the love of God is in the covenants. He's like, a bless Abraham. He blesses David. He blesses the nation of Israel. He gives them a future and a hope. And all of that is, and they keep messing up over and over and over. And yet God says, I will restore you. I will forgive you. And so we definitely see God's love in the Old Testament. But what we don't see in the Old Testament is, and I, what I mean, not that he's not there, it's just that he's a shadow in the Old Testament, and that is Christ. The person of the Messiah is there. He's all over the, the Old Testament. I mean, he's the seed of the woman in Genesis chapter 3, but uh, the reality of him is not until he comes. And when he comes, he brings something new. And so the love isn't new, but our, I, our, our seeing of it is. And therefore, what this love does is new in Christ. I mean, certainly, if, if, um, if Christ is the reality of love, when it comes into the world, it must be different than the shadow. Right? The sh- a shadow is not a real thing. Right? A shadow is you know, what is seen when light uh, is is deflected or or um, or uh, blocked by by an object, and so uh, in the Old Testament, what we see is a shadow of God's love, but not the reality. In, and this is why nobody understood him. Right? Even all the learned people, his disciples, uh, and he, whom he taught for three years, they did not understand his love. But, uh, and we'll see this, your and I's lack of understanding of what God's love is never the problem. What is the problem, and this is a grave problem, is that we think we understand it when we don't. And that becomes a major problem. Because there's a lot of things that compete for God's love. And that call themselves God's love. They're counterfeits. And they, in some cases, look a lot like it. But, you know, the quality or the value of a counterfeit is how close it is to the original. 
and there's a there's a lot of counterfeiting of God's love going on, and we have to understand. So, so if we accept the counterfeit, which believe me is a lot easier on you than God's love is, because God's love is going to send you into places that, you know, it's just like Peter. God, Lord said to Peter, you're going to be girded up, and you're going to go where you don't want to go, and you're going to die there, and you know, Peter doesn't want to do it. Of course he doesn't want to do it. Who would? But is Peter going to go? He is. And willfully. Once he understands. And the same with them is the same for us. We have to come. So not knowing God's love is not a problem as long as you understand that you don't know it. And that you're also in the pursuit of it. So God says, look, you long for me, search for me with all your heart, you're going to find me. And this we have to be after. We have to be looking for or searching for. And he's not hiding it. It's just it, it takes time to uh, undo and unravel all the things that we think are God's love but aren't. Uh, so, through God's love, which is now open to us, the door is thrown wide open through Jesus Christ. We have him, we have the Father, and so we can look upon the face of God and see God's love now. And that's part of the glory of God in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. We look into the mirror that is the glory of God and it reflects back to us. And that image of glory is transferred into us. We can see now because the veil's gone. And so what God has given us through his love is life itself. You know, Jesus said, if you love me, we had this, we looked at this on Sunday, if you love me, you'll keep my commands. And if you do that, me and my father will come and build our home with you. And that means life becomes a home built by the father and the son. That's life. And I mean, it's imagery, but I mean, what does life look like when I am always living in the home that has been built with me? He doesn't say for me, but he says we'll build this house with you, that a house is built with you that you reside in. And it's built by the love of God. Well, one of the things that that is, is happiness. Happiness. uh, uh, And and so, where does happiness come from? And goodness, you know, the ability to do good things. Like truly good things, without ulterior motives behind them. Well, see, the love that we're going to introduce today, which is Eros love, which is another kind of love that was in the world, still in the world. It is the most popular of all loves amongst human beings, uh, is after good things. It is, it is in the pursuit of good things. And, uh, but ulterior, the, uh, ultimately... Those good things are for self. And, I mean, you can do a lot of good things with self in mind. And self is your ultimate goal. And that's not God's love. And yet it sounds in some ways so much like it. And it's not because God's love is absolutely selfless. So, we say, what is good? What is good? Good. What is happiness? See, in the Old Testament, good was promised to the Israelites, so was happiness. 
Uh, in the Old Testament, there was fellowship with God. They worshipped God. They followed the law. If, if they worshipped God, they followed the law, we should say. And they relied upon God in faith. They believed his promises. They believed his covenants. And they followed him. And that was worshipping God. And if you did that, you were blessed. That was the promise. And they were. Anybody who did that was blessed. So has the means of happiness changed? Well, no. We do the same things. We worship God. We follow his law. Not the Mosaic law, but we have law to follow. We're not lawless. And we rely upon him in faith. We faith rest. We do all of that. But what has changed is how much of that we see. So look at John 17, 1. Jesus spoke these things. Now, this is his priestly prayer, as it's sometimes called, at the end of the Gospel of John. This is Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. In verse 1, Jesus spoke these things, and lifting up his eyes to heaven, he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you even as you have given him authority over all flesh, that to all whom you have given him, he may give eternal life. And this is, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Now, wonder of wonders, he doesn't say this is eternal life, eternal life, eternity. This is you in heaven forever. You know, he doesn't say that. He says what is essentially eternal life is knowing the Father and knowing Him. Which he says in John 16 is the whole reason he gave us the Holy Spirit. Was so that we could know the things of Christ which were the things of the Father. And so eternal life is knowing Him. Now, was it that offered in the Old Testament? Well, knowing some of God, but not like this. You're absolutely right. No, this... The offering of seeing the Father. Remember, Jesus says in John 14, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. The ability to see God. Now, if you can see God and God is love, what else can you see but his love? And that's why, you know, when Christ came into the world and did what he did, the Old Testament saints are like, well, Old Testament they're saying, I'd say many of them are, are believers because a lot of the Pharisees and Sadducees did believe in him. They just weren't willing to admit it. But they looked at what Christ did and they were like, well, if you're the Messiah, why are you doing that? Like eating with sinners. And I was like, that doesn't make any sense. You know, the, those who follow the law are blessed. These sinners that Jesus are, is eating with, they're not following the law. He fully admits that they're sinners in Matthew 9. He says, yeah, they're sinners, but I'm with them because I came for the sick. And they're sick. And, you know, when, when the Pharisees heard that, their perfect response would have been, well, you know, you're right, because we're sick too. Even though we follow the law as best that we can, you know, we're still sinners that have been saved by grace. And that should have opened their eyes, but it, but it didn't. Because uh, <clears throat> when agape came into the world, see, when Christ comes, the love of God comes. And, and when the love of God comes, it acts, because love always does things, it acts in the way that love must. 
eating with sinners and tax collectors and prostitutes and all of these who were at the low stratum of Israel's society, Jesus went to directly and didn't behave like they did. He just was with them, revealing himself to them because I came to save the sick, to save the lost. And by doing that, he was, so did he, he didn't like the righteous? Well, of course he did. Uh, Or love, I should say. But by going to the bottom rung, he was showing everybody that he was here for everybody. If he went to the upper rung of the ladder of society, they would have expected that. And be like, see, God came for the righteous. But he came for everybody. And by this, we see that agape love has no calculating aspect to it. In other words, it doesn't look at, say, ten different people, take out a ledger with ten different columns and say, all right, I'm going to grade you on sin and righteousness and evil and faults and vices and personality and everything. All right, I'm going to give you a grade and I'm going to give you a grade and all ten of them I'm going to give a grade and then I get a final grade for all ten and then I'm going to treat all ten in kind according to the grade that I've given them. I mean, and say I do have insight like God does to give that grade accurately. Like I can see that person number three is an absolutely addicted person in secret addicted to some heinous sin. And person one is actually pretty moral and trying real hard to be good. And person nine is somewhere in between and everybody else is somewhere in between. And I give them all a grade from whatever, one to ten. And for person one, I give more time and energy and service because they're better. For person whoever, what was it, three, I give to him, not so much. Or, I'm a romantic, and I switch it. So now I give all my time and energy to person three, and I say to person one, well, you're righteous enough, so you don't need my love. And take all of that and throw it in the trash, and God loves all. It doesn't calculate. And what, so in our study, when we do this, we're going to see, because we can't jump to that immediately. Here's what we can't do. We can't say, here's God's love, now go and do it. Because you're not God. So we need a little instruction in between. But what we're going to find is that what God's love is, is not watered down or changed in us. What I showed to you and to everybody is exactly what God shows to me. But I have to understand how me, how I who have not originated love, because God is love. I'm not love. He, how, does it, how, do, how does that transition go from God gives it to me and then I give it to you? And there's some things there that I have to understand. And one of the things I must understand is I can't water it down. And that's what has exactly happened in the church. It's God's love has been severely compromised. And one of the reasons it's been compromised is because agape came into the world 
of Eros. Not just Eros, though. Agape entered the world of Old Testament love, and it's true. Old Testament love in the first century when Christ came was distorted by the Pharisees, Sadducees, and scribes. But still, as we discussed a little bit at the front, Old Testament love is not exactly the same as New Testament love. That's why Christ said, I give you a new commandment that you love as I love. Um, And other new commandments that you be perfect like your Father in heaven is perfect. So agape love entered into a world of distorted Old Testament love and it entered into the world of Greek eros love. And the Old Testament love is not what we see in our society. So that's not a little bit, but not really much. That's not really the issue for the church. It is in some realms. There are some, you know, um, people who are worshipers of Jewish orthodoxy who uh, do believe that salvation is by works and what they have is a concept of Old Testament love. And, uh, you know, and that, you know, that the church, the, well, the church teaches all. We just have to teach God's love. But what has uh, more than anything distorted agape love is eros love. Uh, and so um, <clears throat> when agape comes into the world, it comes into a world that is saturated for centuries, even longer than that, but... Uh, saturated with eros love. Well, we, we call it eros because that's what the Greeks called it. But, you know, we don't call it that anymore, but it's still alive and well. It doesn't matter what name we give to it. Um, eros was a love of people, of things, of the gods that served the highest achievement of the individual and his highest happiness. So now think about this. This Eros love was the achievement of man to, and in fact, because a lot of people think, well, Eros means erotic, and so Eros love is only like sexual satisfaction. And it's not. It's not at all. To the Greeks, especially to Plato, Eros was the way of rising above your instincts your fleshly instincts, and rising up to a place where you freed your soul from the prison of the body and you achieved a heavenly place. Now think about that. That's, I mean, that's what a lot of people do believe. What is inherent in Eros is that there's something good in every person. Right? So what you have to do is find that good. So now think about this in terms of, you know, how this has uh, impacted our world. If there's something good in you, then you have to find it. So what your first step is to introspect, is to go inside yourself. Find the good in yourself. It's in there somewhere. It's buried. It's underneath, you know, feet and feet of soil. And you have to dig and dig and dig. And you go in there. So... The first part of Eros is self-introspection. And then what you find, when you find what is good, then through whatever you do, whether it's through good works or wisdom or education 
or achievement, uh, could be asceticism, could be a denial of the body, and through that you take that seed in you that's good and you rise it up to heaven. And you achieve a heavenly status. So it's de- uh, Eros is definitely not just the basic instincts, the vulgar instincts of love for personal fleshly pleasure or bodily pleasure, erotic sensuality we may call it. It's not that. If Eros were only that, it would have never been a problem for Christianity. It would have been easy to deal with. You know, because you know, a lot of people could see, even in the ancient Greek world, that people who delved into erotic, sensual pleasure ended up killing themselves. They ended up ruining their lives. They knew this. Do you think alcoholics had a better and easier time in the 5th century B.C. than they do now? Of course not. So, they knew that. But the problem with Eros' love, for which it it became a problem for Christianity, was the fact that it called the human being to heaven. So does agape love. But it does so in a different way. Um, So whatever we call it, eros love, human love, self-love, worldly love, whatever you want to call it, this love is the predominantly accepted idea in the world. And it's notoriously hard to pin down because it's so broad. It's like a broad flowing river that takes everything with it. And it has a lot of things flowing into it that portray themselves as love. Agape has absolutely nothing to do with eros. Actually, you don't find the word eros anywhere in the New Testament. Now, you're going to find out I'm not putting phileo into the picture here. A lot of people think, well, agape and phileo are the two loves that we need to discern. But in fact, in the New Testament, agape and phileo oftentimes uh, interject or replace one another in meaning. They're not that different in meaning. However, the Bible uses agape far, far more. And it's the first Greek written literature that uses agape in any, in, in, you know, in any volume. Uh, uh, or in, it, it, the, Bible, the New Testament is the first literature in Greek to use agape in any significant way. And that should tell you something. It's a new love. So, eros and agape don't come from the same place. But oftentimes they sound similar, and so they, what happens with us, and it, I, you'll see when we get through this, you'll see, oh yeah, I believe that, and maybe you still do, and the, and the hope is, and I found some places in my own heart, that, and I got more, I'm sure, to discover, where my conception of agape was, was wrong, and that's just fine by me, because that's what I want to know. If I find out that I know everything about God's love, then, you know, then put me away somewhere because I'm absolutely deceived. (laughs) I mean, nobody does. So when you find something new about this, it's going to be exciting, I hope. Eros love is always individualistic in the end. It always seeks for self in the end. 
It seeks to elevate self. But it often in seemingly selfless ways. So, for example, a wealthy person gives to a bunch of charities. Let's say the reason why he does that is he's trying to look good in society. Let's say he believes it's good. But why is he doing it? Well, he's, like Jesus said to the rich man, give away everything, give, sell all that you have and give it to the poor and you'll have eternal life. And he was like, well, that's too much. I'll give some. You know, if Jesus said give 10% of what you have and you'll have eternal life, he would have fallen all over himself given that. But to give it all? And there's a point being made there by Christ, which is not that we have to give everything away to gain eternal life. He's telling us what eternal life really is. And what he doesn't want us to do is hold on to the old life in any way, which is very hard for us to do, to let go of it all. But isn't that exactly what agape does? Jesus gives up heaven. He gives up deity. Not, you know, not permanently, but for a certain number of years. He limits himself to the finite life of humanity. He suffers. He bleeds. He dies. And all of that, he gives. He gives it. The father gives his son. Agape loses but then it gains because it's God. So, why does the rich man give to charities? And often cases, he's doing good with the hope of securing a higher standing in society and maybe even trying to get into heaven. You know, there's a reason why that big building in downtown New York is called the Rockefeller Center. He, David Rock. It's David, right? I think it's David. That he he gave him Carnegie the whole of all of those first uber rich barons wanted to leave a legacy. So why did they give? Why were they altruistic? Well, in the end, it was for self. But now here's what you would miss if you think that Eros is ultimately selfish. It's you know they at least. Those who believe in Eros love do not think that. That it is the means of doing good. So I really want to do good. And I really want to do good things to uh, free my soul and my spirit from the base things of sinful, evil things, at least as the world says that they are. And to really lift myself up. So, in essence, I would say I am doing good. I'm lifting up all these people and myself at the same time. And God says, see that self part? That's got to go. And then the whole world says, well, that doesn't make any sense. Because Jesus tells us that you have to lose yourself. I don't care if you if if somebody was able to make every all however almost at eight billion people on planet Earth if someone was able to lift up eight billion people to a status of comfort and and you know economic and eliminate war and make the whole world a, just the most perfect place to live a paradise and he lifted himself up as well. He's done nothing. Nothing. 
I mean, God came into the world and did miracles and healed. Why didn't he do it for everybody? Because that wasn't what he was here for. He was here to reveal himself, really reveal the Father. So the most dangerous of situations for us is when Eros fuses itself with agape and love becomes individualistic, self-serving, and we accept that as Christian love. In other words, we're deceived. So we'll do good, we'll serve, we'll do good as long as, you know, we... So, you know, it, and I'm, I'm stating it wrong. It really is the idea that I, I want to do for you and I want absolutely nothing for myself. And even in that, you can be like, well, I want nothing for myself because I think that's the, you know, uh, how do I put it? You know, in the end, I'm really going to get for myself. I mean, it is truly a lot, like loss, loss of self. And in fact, all you want to do is do for others. But Eros has fused itself with agape all throughout church history. There have always been a few that have held on to the purity of agape love. That's always God's remnant. But for the most part, agape has been destroyed by... Uh, humanistic false love. So consider a Christian who performs a lot of good work for others because it makes them feel good or because they think they ought to. So here's another scenario, and we have to be very careful of this one. If I'm obliged to do something for others, should I do it even if I don't want to? The answer is yeah. There's no caveat in the scripture that says, oh, no, if you don't really feel like it, don't do my will. (laughs) That would be an interesting scripture, but it ain't there. Um, So we have to be careful about that and about this. And I I really, I I hope you pay attention to this because, you know, it's just something I'm going to say. It's nothing I can diagram or or make very, very plain without just appealing to each of us to know, for instance, that life is complex. You know, often when we're diagramming things or, you know, even that, you know, that graphic is a <coughs> oversimplified thing. Life isn't oversimplified. Say um, I do a lot of good work for others because... I think I ought to. Well, you ought to. Yes. But obligation doesn't always mean agape love. Is that God's love? Well, say you serve another person because God is good. You say, well, God is good and he wants me to do this. But in actuality, I'm not good. Meaning, I don't really want to do it. And between me and you, I hate doing it. But it's commanded, so I must. Life is complex. (laughs) Doing because you ought to do is better than not doing. I would say that doing because you ought to, even if you don't want to, is better than not doing. We can agree on that. But if you are doing your service grudgingly, then it is probably better than not doing it. 
I have, I have it. I've seen this. I've done it myself. I've seen people state it as a virtue. That my motivation isn't exactly right, so I'm going to do nothing. You know, I need to have my motivation has got to be right. I've got to be filled with the Spirit. I've got to confess my sins, filled with the Spirit, have my right motivation. I don't have any of that, so I'm going to do nothing. And they think that they're spiritual for making that decision. Boy, self-justification is a, a monstrous and very uh, a tempting thing. But perhaps, perhaps after you've done something grudgingly for a while, you'll see the value of it. Because what? You're commanded. But is this the best thing? And this is what I'm getting at. Is it the best thing? No. Not by far. The best thing is to do what you've been commanded to do and loving the command. Why? Because you love the Lord. You love the Lord. You've figured him out. Not No one's ever figured him out fully. But you've figured him out somewhat. And you say, well, you know what? I see the value in this. Like, like for me personally, I'm starting to actually see the value of not thinking about myself at all. Now, I've said that a thousand times from this pulpit, but saying it isn't seeing it. I've got a long way to go. Um, But, you know, when you start to see the value of it, and value as, not that I'm getting anything for myself, but I see the rightness and the value of it, and that, you know, everything else pales in comparison to the value that God puts on things. When, he, when God says this is valuable, and once you figure out why that is valuable, you are on your way. So doing things grudgingly, yeah, we should do them. Is that the best place to be? No. So what am I getting at? Know where you are. In other words, know the love of God. And if you're not at it yet or in that sphere, know it. Don't lie to yourself and say that grudgingly serving others is God's love. You might be closer than you were before. You know when Jesus said to people in the gospel, you're close to the kingdom of heaven? Do you ever wonder what the heck he meant by that? (laughs) I have. Like he said to to people who, uh, who was that, the lawyers who quoted to him the two great commandments. He said, you're close to the kingdom of heaven. And I think here, for us, as we're growing in grace and knowledge and figuring things out, we're getting closer. But know that you're, if you're not there, you've got to know it. So you, without condemnation, you've got to say to yourself, I need to do this a lot better. And when I say better, I mean in the sphere of God's love. The problem occurs and has occurred very much in the church when the grudgingly of doing things is called God's love. That is eros, because in the end, grudgingly doing for others is self-serving. In other words, I want to do for you, and I can't wait till it's over so I can stop (laughs) doing for you. So in the end, I'm trying to serve myself. As I said, keep doing what you're called to do. But know where you're at. We must all do what God commands us as unworthy slaves. 
Right? So you remember this parable where the, the disciples said, increase our faith. And he said, well, if you had faith like a mustard seed, you could tell this tree to get up, be uprooted, and throw itself into the sea. Uh, and, and, and then he continued and said, you know, if you're a slave and you've worked all day in the fields and you come in, the master doesn't say, well, you've done a lot of work today. Sit down and let me give you dinner. No. He says, now get to your inside job after you've done your outside job and serve me. And after you're done serving the master, you can sit down and eat. And Jesus said, now do this and consider yourself an unworthy slave. And that's what we are. And to me, that was his answer to increase our faith because he didn't really answer their question, but he gave them that illustration to say, look, just follow me and your faith and love will increase. But you've got to follow me. You've got, because none of us are going to figure it out like overnight. You know, what is God's love? We're going to pursue it our whole lives. And yet there are going to be times where we're going to understand parts of it that, you know, and this part that I'm getting at here at the front is God's love is completely irrational. It does not calculate who gets what. In my illustration of the ten people, it doesn't do that. It loves all ten. This homeless drug addict on the street and your wife or your husband. It loves them all. I'm not saying that you treat them all the same. That's silly. Of course not. (laughs) But you love them. So from God's love, because Jesus didn't treat everybody exactly the same. He didn't treat his disciples like he did the Pharisees, but he loved them both. So what does God's love tell me to do here? And... Let go. Put it in the Father's hands. Calculating giving of time and resources is eros. Self-serving. We saw this last time in the parable of the vineyard owners and laborers. Those who worked an hour got the same as those who worked all day. Giving more or less was based on someone's merit. If you do that, that's legal love. Right? Love that is legal. You deserve more than this one deserves, but that's not agape. Merit or worthiness in others is eros love. Agape has none of that in it. For instance, God says we've all gone astray. Romans three ten through 12, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There's not even one. So which ones are we to love? All of them. Which ones does God love? All of them. So I should I, I really want to stop talking about us loving because we need to front load this with God loving. God loves all. The whole world. So he gave his son. So Agape love knows that all have gone astray. So, if I'm going to find this love, if I'm going to actually understand this love, uh, I can't be looking inside myself, can I? What's in myself? (laughs) This passage goes on longer. It says the poison of asp is under their lips. There's nothing but death in them and on and on. 
there's nothing in me. And so if I'm living in a love that serves self, then I'm really looking to myself and what I'm going to find is that. And that's why Eros love is never, Eros love is giving people enjoyment and uh, periods of happiness. Uh, it gave Plato and Aristotle a career, basically. And, you know, and it, and it gives people this feeling that they're doing something and yet it never fulfills anybody. No, they all. I know that these people who do this, who have given their lives, and Christians who have given their lives to Eros love, have never really found the fulfillment that God promises. You know that perfect peace that transcends understanding. They've never seen it because while you're looking in yourself or to yourself, even a little bit, peace you're not going to find. There'll always be that that, uh, you know, that lack of purity in what it is that you're doing. Now, again, when I say purity, I don't mean sinlessness. I mean, what are, you, what are you really after? And here we have to be after the purity of God's love. So let's go to Matthew 10. Matthew 10, verse 38. So the meritless person has to lose himself in order to find it. The picture I put in here is the Tower of Babel uh, because yeah, out of all the illustrations, there are many, many illustrations I could have thought of that are depicted in the Old Testament of mankind tempting without God to establish themselves or to elevate themselves. I think Saul, the first king of Israel, who started off wonderfully in humility, and then all he wanted to do was preserve his kingship. Whereas David, the second king, was exactly the opposite. David was humble. Um, and so David understood that he was meritless. But when David did see merit in himself, boy, did he get in trouble. And this is written for us and illustrated for us, for God to show us that you know, what is real here when it comes to God's love and, and what are the consequences of when we're pursuing self and calling it love. That's the problem. That's the, the bigger problem. It's still a problem to pursue sin, even though you know it's wrong. But when you're pursuing things that are not of God and you're saying that they are, that is a, is a very deep problem. So the Lord says in Matthew 10:38. And he who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. And he who has found his life will lose it. And he who has lost his life for my sake will find it. He who has found his life will lose it. So we always say, and life here is the word soul. It's suke, the Greek word. It means really, you know, life here. It's not that he's asking us to martyr ourselves or to kill ourselves. He's saying, look, you know, what is your life? What are you looking for? What do you value? As he said in the, in the Sermon on the Mount, your treasure is where your heart is. That's where your treasure is. And, so, and that's what he means here. If you've lost your everything for him, then you'll find it. 
And, you know, this, this pursuit of it is something. I mean, and what we've got to do is, through our years of learning the Scripture, is to start to see what God's love is without all our preconceived notions or what we've been brought up with or what pastor so-and-so said. And, and just what does God say that it is? And so what does he say that it is? And I'm not going to have time to get to them, but we just look at various parables. We looked at one on Sunday, which was the vineyard owner who's given to the people who worked one hour the same amount that he gave to those who worked 14 hours all through the hot day. And the people who worked all day said it was unfair. Well, the same when the prodigal son, who the father runs out to, which is in that parable a depiction of what the father always does. If any of us leave the father and take what he has given us and throw it away, when we repent and return, he's not going to be standing there tapping his foot waiting for us to fess up to all that we did. He's going to run to us and throw his arm around us. And that doesn't make any sense. And the older brother put in that parable... Remember, he's not a real person. Jesus puts him there to depict the thinking of Eros and what had happened to the Old Testament love in the hands of the Pharisees and Sadducees is that they had taken love, called it God's love, and made it merited. So the father should not be giving a party and, and, and showering the younger brother with blessings when I've been here, the older brother says, my whole life serving you and you haven't given me anything. And the father says, look, I love him like I love you. See, and that's what you get out of the parable. You don't want to pull any more out of that. Jesus isn't telling us to be the younger brother because he's not telling us to run away from the father and waste all his stuff. And he's not telling us to be the older brother. What is he telling us in the parable? That this is what the Father's like. The Father loves in an irrational, unmerited, groundless, spontaneous way. And then God's going to turn around and say, no, I want you to do the same. He never asked an Old Testament saint to do that. So while in the church age we have all of these amazing blessings that God did not give to the Old Testament saints and there's accountability that comes with it. So that's another thing we have to iron out here. How the the loser, sinner, bottom rung of society is showered with God's love and then we see it and we come into the fold by faith and then he turns around and says, now I want you to be perfect. I said, well, what did I get myself into here? Can I go back to being the runaway son? (laughs) And I'll just run away every day and you come out and throw your arms around me? Think of that life. Well, some have lived that life. It's not a fun life. So, you know, we we have to unravel that. What is the change from unbeliever to believer and have we gone from grace to works? The answer is no there, but we have to figure that out. So what happens is, is that we see this. It's a glimpse for sure. 
But when we see it, this is what we do. It's this parable of the hidden treasure. Go to Matthew 13.44. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in the field, which a man found and hid again, and from joy over it, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. So these are the kingdom of heaven parables, which starts off with the parable of the sower, which, by the way, in the parable of the sower, is also irrational. Think about how much seed is spread by the sower that produces nothing. Right? He does it anyway, doesn't he? Some go by the side of the road, they grow nothing. Some go to the thorns and thistles. They grow up a little bit and then they choke out and then he, the stuff goes in the, the shallow soil. All of that seed is wasted. And then there's some seed that goes in the good soil. Why doesn't he just plant in the good soil? You move on to the parable of the wheat and the tares. The people come in and the servants come in and tell the, the owner of the fields. An enemy has planted tares in your field. What should we do? He says, eh. Well, I'm, he doesn't say, eh. <laughs> he says, wait till the end of time and, and we'll harvest it. But he says, let the tares grow. And tares are the unbeliever. So why did God, you know, sow so broadly? And yet there would be in his world the sin and evil and this ugliness. And yet he did it a lot. It's, it, what is it, it shows his love. It's a part of his love that we couldn't possibly comprehend. Because none of us would do that. Yeah, if you know there's a patch of good soil that's going to give you automatic growth, you're not going to go over to these other places where you know the seed's just going to die. He did. And yet, so, even though we don't understand quite a bit here, what we do is we see the kingdom of heaven. And, and in, my, in, in here, in our study, we see that God's love is irrational. And then we want it. We want it more than anything. Not that we don't have it, but what I mean is we want to see all of it. I want to see His love. And that to do that, I've got to change. Don't I? I mean, I can't stay where I'm at and, and have a limited knowledge of God's love and just stay where I am in my knowledge base and in my growth wherever I'm at, wherever that is. No, I've got to change. I've got to grow up. And that, that's just what he means here. I sell everything to buy that field. Now match that with what the Lord said before in losing your life. This is what you're selling. Not to gain eternal life. You already have that. What he's saying here is not eternal life, but the kingdom of heaven. It is seeing it for what it is. And to do that, I've got to shed all the false conceptions, the legal concepts of love that gives according to merit, the individual concepts of love that disguise themselves as agape, but they're not. And then I'm filled with this all-encompassing passion to find this treasure. And I lose my life. 
I can't serve two masters. I've got a whole, I can't hold on to some stuff and see all of this. And God bids me to let go of it. So application is don't allow, be very careful of self-love and very careful of deceiving yourself into thinking that your love is divine love. So what I would say to you, and I'm, I'm practicing this myself, ask God in prayer to reveal where, where it is that my concepts of love are wrong. Find that. Ask him. Right? He's gonna, that's a prayer that God's going to answer every day. Ask God to reveal it to you where and if that you have false concepts of his love in your soul. And then seek to lose your life in order to find his. Know what the, and ask him that. What does it mean to lose my life here? It doesn't mean martyrdom. It means that some of the things, behaviors, thought processes that I'm hanging on to are not divine and they are holding me back from seeing what your love is. <clears throat> now tomorrow we'll hop into some of these parables and see it a little more. And I think we're, we'll just continue with, with this part of it first because I didn't get very far today. Uh, and to see what God's love is, I want that iron down first. We have to make sure that we see that God's love is not Eros love and that it's not human love. We see it for what it is. And then we can move to how do I apply it in my life. If I don't see it for what it is and then I go to application, I'm putting into my soul and saying it's Christian love when it's not. And then, and then you've got to go back again. So get it right the first time. What is God's love? As the Bible sells it, sells it, says it, I should say, or sells it, I guess. Know what it is, and then we can move to application. You'll never waste a moment of your time pursuing what God's love is. That is never a waste of our time. All right, let's pray. Thank you, Father, for your word, and thank you for guiding and directing us in the truth of your love. So many parts of what you do are impossible for us to understand, but that makes sense because you are eternal and infinite. But, Father, what you have revealed to us concerning your love, may we see it and worship you for it. Just step one here, Father. Help us to understand what your love is. And we ask in Christ's name, amen.